This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am your host, Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. And today I'm speaking with Daniel Joseph Burge. Dr. Burge is the research coordinator at the Kentucky Historical Society, where he also serves as the associate editor for the Register of the Kentucky Historical Society, which is that institution's peer-reviewed uh, history journal. And he is also the author of A Failed Vision of Empire, The Collapse of Manifest Destiny, 1845 to 1872, which came out just a couple weeks ago, earlier this month in May 2022 from the University of Nebraska Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Daniel. Good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Why don't we start, uh, as is traditional, on the New Books Network by just hearing about you as an author. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about your background and maybe how you became interested in history. Sure. So I grew up right outside of Washington, D.C. and ended up going to several institutions in the area. So I went to University of Maryland at the time, University College, and then went on for a master's degree at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And that's where I really started to become interested in the subject of history, but also realizing that that was what I wanted to go into as a profession. I think throughout my undergraduate career, I was interested in history, but I was like many students, very unsure of what I wanted to do with my academic career. Did I really think I was capable of going on long-term into this profession? It seemed somewhat daunting. But I got to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and that's where I encountered a couple of professors who really pushed me towards researching more, um, thinking more about some topics that I was interested in. And that's the point where I decided to just take the step, apply for PhD programs and see how that worked out, which somewhat interestingly brought me down to Alabama. So a place that I had never even been before applying for the PhD programs. I was accepted at the University of Alabama. So I moved down there in 2011 and ended up working with Dr. George Rabel, who is most known or who studies the Civil War, sort of Reconstruction. Um, He did a book on Reconstruction, I should say, but mainly a Civil War historian. I worked with Rabel and was interested in the subject of Manifest Destiny. That's sort of what I hit on when I was working or a working on my master's degree at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. So I decided to take that into the PhD program, expand it, sort of build on what I had learned previously. And so I spent six years at Alabama, graduated in 2017, and I'm quite excited to have turned the dissertation with some good revisions, um, some heavy revisions, but eventually turned it into the book. And I'm excited to have that out. Just to sort of expand a little bit upon what you mentioned, I now work in more of a public history venue. I'm an editor, associate editor at the Kentucky Historical Society in Frankfort, Kentucky. I also run the fellowship program. 
So lots of academics who come to the Kentucky Historical Society to do research. I facilitate their visits. We typically have 10 to 15 fellows each year. So I've been much more involved for the last two years in more of a public history setting than in a more traditional sort of tenure track academic job. And what in that whole process got you interested in this particular history? What brought you to the topic of Manifest Destiny and of American expansion in the 19th century West? You're talking about kind of, you know, uh, uh, cutting your historical teeth in places like Alabama and in the area around Washington, D.C. So what brought you to the West and to this quest of expansion? That's a really good question. What intrigued me first of all was i was at university of maryland baltimore county and i think like many graduate students i was fishing around for a thesis i did not have a real strong idea of what i wanted to do i was interested in mid-19th century history so anything to do with the u.s mexican war and i was going through some of the congressional debates and as i was going through these debates in 1846 1847 I came across a couple of speeches where a congressman and in one case a senator made fun of Manifest Destiny and just came out there and just started going on and on about how this was blasphemous and just a terrible idea and there's, there's nothing sort of edifying about Manifest Destiny and how can anyone believe in this? So I was sitting there going, huh, this is an interesting topic that I'm not sure people have explored to, the, to an extent. So I started doing a little background. I took it at the time to Dr. Terry Boughton, who generally does um, U.S. Revolution, sort of American Revolution. He was interested in it, and he's the one who said, Daniel, you should really look into this more, figure out who these people are, why are they talking about Manifest Destiny? He didn't think anyone had really done a similar study. And, and as I'll get to as this interview goes along, I'm sure, I found out later that there are people doing really excellent work on Manifest Destiny that I, I do agree with. So I will certainly sort of bring them up and talk about them as we go. But at the time, I was just intrigued by who are these people talking about Manifest Destiny? Why do they disagree with it? What sort of is that background that I did not understand? I had been taught, I think like most people, I would say even through today, Manifest Destiny is super popular. Manifest Destiny is something that the majority of Americans believed in. This is something that most people sort of just tacitly accepted. They, they believed in it. And I didn't understand why so many people I was coming across simply did not agree with it and, and openly expressed sort of their dissatisfaction with the ideology. So I started researching that. I did a I finished the thesis. It was somewhat short. I think like most master's um, thesis are. I covered the U.S.-Mexican War, so 1846. I briefly touched on filibustering, so brought the story up to 1850, but that was pretty much the extent of where the thesis took me. At the time, I really didn't think it would turn into sort of a bigger project when I moved to Alabama, I was thinking of expanding it a little bit and maybe including more filibustering in the 1850s. And when I got to Alabama, it was really that I was just blown away by the amount of material and that I really started to sort of what I think hit upon my major insight, which is that individuals are debating Manifest Destiny, 
talking about Manifest Destiny, sort of thinking about it as an ideology long past the 1840s. It's not something that's just debated during the U.S.-Mexican War. So at that point, what became sort of challenging was, as a historian, to piece these different pieces together. And as someone who was very familiar with the U.S.-Mexican War and sort of the decade of the 1840s, I had to familiarize myself with the sectional crisis and bring it through the 1850s. Then I was, I couldn't just end the story in the Civil War because so much keeps happening after that. So eventually I, I bring it all the way through the purchase of Alaska and the failed attempt to secure Santa Domingo, the Dominican Republic, um, what we refer to as the Dominican Republic today, in 1872. So if you look at the book title, the time period tells you sort of right off the bat that this goes far beyond the decade of the 1840s. I think looking back, the thing that surprises me is I didn't really expect to come across such a broad time period and to move from the 1840s all the way into the 1870s. As I kept researching, I just couldn't stop the story. So as I was working on the dissertation, it became, I can't stop in 1855 people are still debating this. And then it became, I can't stop it in the Civil War because people are still talking about it. And I sort of moved that into the decade where discussions of Manifest Destiny really taper off after 1872. So I think that sort of formed the point where I could comfortably sort of end the study, even though I, I, I still think it'd be really interesting to move up that narrative and to keep it going through the 1880s, 1890s, People are still talking about Manifest Destiny into the 1920s. So it's something that I think is there. At some point, I just had to wrap it up, get the book out, and sort of finish up um, what I think was the major time periods when people discussed this ideology. So that's kind of what brought me to Alabama. Just funding, but also the opportunity to expand on my master's thesis. And then it just took me in directions I honestly didn't think it was going to go early on and it just led me in that direction you know it's so funny and this is something that as as you were saying i'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit but um you know i teach undergraduates and you were talking about how people just assume that manifest destiny is just this thing that everybody accepted in the mid 19th century and i do sort of like a, an informal poll at the start of the semester every year in my intro uh you know u.s history since 1865 course and one of the things that all the students say that they know about 19th century american history is oh manifest destiny was a thing like everyone believed in the some idea called manifest destiny and what your book is doing is complicating that narrative which as you said still still carries a lot of weight today, still very much holds true today, that people still think that this is just a thing that everyone believed in. But what you're saying is that that's not really the case at all. And that is the trickiest thing I've come across is when I originally started this project, my idea was just, okay, I'm going to flesh out who these people were who were opposing it. I didn't think there were a lot of them. I just thought it was interesting that they, there were people opposing it. As mm -hmm. time passed, it just expanded and expanded mm -hmm. to the point where I go, wait, it doesn't seem like the majority of people are speaking up for this. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. My wife teaches eighth grade social studies. And the story of Manifest Destiny is just ubiquitous. I mean, it's taught. I think we all pick it up either in school or we sort of just hear about it. But even if you talk to eighth graders, oh, Manifest Destiny, it's Dr. Bird studies Manifest Destiny they have an idea of what that means. And it's very much 
what I think your students talked about, mm-hmm. this idea of expansion, super popular. It's just sort of this era. And as I was exploring this topic, I just came across, okay, that's really a narrative that we've really produced in a short space of time that it's really taken over. But I do think it's amazing the extent to which that narrative does dominate today at all levels. I mean, it just, it's sort of just accepted that Manifest Destiny is just like hovering, hovering (laughs) in the air. And people just sort of, they sort of just believe in it just because it's it's just there in the 1840s. Well, why don't we take a step back and just start by even defining what it is that we're talking about. So what is Manifest Destiny? Where does this term originate? How do people usually conceive of this concept's meaning? Okay, so this is where it does get a little bit tricky because I will I will state right off the bat that if you read five books that talk about Manifest Destiny, they will give you different definitions. And I think I originally worked off of some of these definitions Traditionally, it will read something like Manifest Destiny is the idea that the United States was destined to expand from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So Manifest Destiny as sort of continental expansion, usually using words like accomplished, fulfilled, um, whatever word you want to use to say when you hit the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, that's sort of just the end of the story. Manifest Destiny is done. People stop talking about it. It's sort of how the U.S. expands. That's your traditional definition. And there's other aspects that people typically throw in. Manifest destiny is sort of a hangover, if you will, from Puritan ideology that holds that the U.S. is sort of this chosen nation destined to conquer, destined to expand. And that's what sort of infuses the thinking in the 1840s and leads people to eventually move into Texas, New Mexico, and really once they get to California, sort of see that as filling out, if you will, the boundaries of the United States, which is problematic, which I'm sure we'll get to as this sort of discussion goes along. What I quickly came to realize is first, you can't just delimit Manifest Destiny to the 1840s. Although people see it as continental sort of expansion, People are talking about it in the 1850s, in the 1860s, in the 1870s, really up until the 1920s in a sense that I will define as the idea that the United States is destined to acquire not the Pacific Coast, but the entire continent of North America. So really talking about Canada, what becomes the United States in the sense of Atlantic to Pacific, and then stretching down into Mexico, typically with all Central America thrown in as well, sort of seeing it as part of that larger sort of continental dream. As I went back, I did realize that other historians had defined Manifest Destiny in this way before. So I do apologize for those of you who read the book. There's a lot of historiography in the opening sort of introductory chapter. I know sometimes that's not the most exciting sort of material to get through and to read, but it does sort of lay the groundwork for this is how people define Manifest Destiny. This is how I define Manifest Destiny. But the reason why I define Manifest Destiny as the idea that the U.S. is destined to take the continent of North America is because, quite simply, that's how people define it in the 1840s, 1850s, and 1860s. 
if you're talking about the Democratic Review, if we're talking about the New York Times, if you talk about the Washington Post in a later decade, they all look at Manifest Destiny as this sort of uncompleted, unfulfilled idea that the U.S. is somehow, some way destined to take over all of North America. And I think, as, as we all know, that story plays out differently because that dream doesn't come to pass. So in a certain sense, yes, I do define Manifest Destiny in a different way than many historians have in the past who simply see it as continental expansion east to west. What I hope the book shows and what I hope discussions like this sort of show is that's because that's really how people in the 19th century saw Manifest Destiny. It's really a later generation that comes along and sort of pictures Manifest Destiny as just an east to west expansion. It's much more expansive than that. People just assumed that the U.S. would somehow acquire Canada, that Mexico would basically be conquered. They were very unsure about how Cuba would come along, but the idea that Cuba would somehow be part of the United States one day, that's sort of the idea of Manifest Destiny. So I define it very simply as the continental idea that the U.S. would control and sort of unify the continent of North America under one government. You mentioned historiography a minute ago and the, the, the rather lengthy historiography uh, historiography section in, in your book. And on the one hand, I loved that. I mean, I know that, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of the target audience for a section like that, but I thought it was very well-written and fascinating and some pretty accessible historiography generally. And I also think that that section is really important to this book. It ties into what we were talking about a minute ago, about how this idea uh, that Manifest Destiny was broadly accepted, how that becomes sort of, you know, something that that even undergraduates or eighth graders just sort of assume is the case. I think historians have a role to play there. So I want to ask you a bit about how historians have talked about Manifest Destiny over time. Can you just give maybe an overview of the historiography of this idea and you know, how historians have written about Manifest Destiny and what they have gotten wrong and maybe how that narrative is changing in more recent years? I appreciate that. And I think what I tried to do in the introduction and what my hope was, was that it would be sort of a somewhat breezy introduction to just this idea of Manifest Destiny and how it plays out over the past. It really begins, as I show throughout sort of the opening chapters of the book, in that people define Manifest Destiny relatively consistently up until the 1920s as this idea of continentalism, that the United States would acquire the continent of North America. If someone, if you just go to newspapers.com or you really just go to any search database and type in Manifest Destiny, almost without, without a doubt, you'll come across articles talking about continentalism, this idea that it's still going on. What fascinated me is it's really in the 1920s that historians start to build this nationalist narrative of Manifest Destiny as East to West, Manifest Destiny as being a synonym for Western expansion, Manifest Destiny as completed and fulfilled with the individuals who are writing in the 1920s. They see that as a very good thing. There's several books that come out sort of these nationalist narratives of hurrah for Manifest Destiny. It's what brings the U.S. from east to west. So by the 1920s, you start to establish this idea of Manifest Destiny is really successful. 
It's what leads the U.S. to move from east to west. It's what gives the United States California. It sort of completes or fulfills the U.S. It, it sort of shows that we are a special people. And you see this really from the 1920s to the 1940s. And a lot of these nationalist sort of histories that try to explain why the U.S. is either exceptional or why Western expansion is a good thing and, and sort of that overarching idea. Now, what I found really interesting is that from the 1950s into the 1970s, you have historians who push back against this idea. And I really wanted to make sure I gave them credit in the introduction because a lot of my findings do echo what individuals wrote in the 1950s and 60s, especially there's a historian who was at Harvard I believe he was a student of Frederick um, Jackson Turner. His name was Frederick Merck. His wife, Louis Bannister Merck, sort of co they co-authored a couple of books on expansion in the 1840s and 50s. He writes a work entitled Manifest Destiny and Mission in American History. He argues something somewhat similar to what I argue, that Manifest Destiny really wasn't that popular. More importantly, I think Merck argues that Manifest Destiny meant continentalism, that the U.S. was supposed to acquire the continent of North America. And as he and Louis Bannister point out, it wasn't fulfilled. It didn't happen. It was sort of unsuccessful. This is where sort of the vagaries of history and the historical profession, I think, come in. Why do people not listen to these books that specifically study Manifest Destiny and challenge some of these ideas early on? But in the 50s, you have the Mercs writing really into the 60s. A couple decades later, you'll have historians who also sort of challenge this idea of manifest destiny. Beginning in the 1990s and early 2000s, however, you also see sort of this alternate school of historians who very much pick up what I like to term sort of the myth of manifest destiny. Manifest destiny is east to west expansion really echoing those historians in the 1920s who argue that it's super popular. There's a few people who challenge it, but they're sort of dismissed. So if you come across, let's just say, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's sort of skeptical about Manifest Destiny and who sort of grouses about it, he's just sort of a disgruntled individual who's not with the times. He doesn't really understand what's happening, sort of that interpretation. So I do think the reason we do see the interpretation sort of take over of Manifest Destiny as popular and pervasive is because beginning in the 1990s, we sort of start to build that narrative out. Um, again, as I try to lay out in the introduction and without sort of going into too many of the nitty gritty details, a lot of historians have challenged that narrative over time. I mean, you have the Mercs in the 60s, you have a book in the 1980s, Manifest Design by Hatala that looks at sort of expansion as not being um, preordained or for, like destined to happen. More recently, you have excellent historians like Andres Resendez, who published Changing National Identities at the Board at the Frontier. You have Eisenberg, um, Tommy Richards, Rachel St. John, who have all sort of challenged this narrative of manifest destiny in sort of different and unique ways. What's interesting to me is sort of our inability to challenge that dominant narrative or to sort of get the dominant 
textbook interpretation and push back and show what I'd like to think is a far more interesting story of sort of contested ideas and people challenging different things and, and very much a story of U.S. expansion as not being sort of plotted out or planned um, over the course of the 1840s and 50s and 60s. So the historiography is interesting. I do try to lay that out. It is a little convoluted. Again, I don't have a good answer for why does this idea of manifest destiny sort of just really take hold in the 1990s and early 2000s? Why have so many good historians who've written good books been unable to really overturn that narrative? I like to just highlight their work. I hope to push back. And I hope books like mine sort of push back against that textbook interpretation and show us all that there's a lot more to the story and that the 1840s, 50s, 60s, and 70s in terms of U.S. empire is a lot more interesting than we traditionally think in terms of what happens in the debates that play out over time. Well, let's go back to the root of this idea of Manifest Destiny and, and sort of how it is born. So what is the context within which Manifest Destiny as an idea, as a concept, is created? Who coins the phrase? Where is it first written down? And maybe more importantly for the, the argument that you're making in, in the book, what kind of reaction does this idea uh, uh, receive upon its birth in the mid-19th century? These are the things that I find fascinating because what I found as I did research contradicted to such a great extent what I had learned throughout my academic career. And I think that's that's been the most difficult thing is I like to tell people I'm one of those people who sort of accepted the textbook narrative, the textbook definition, sort of the traditional interpretation of Manifest Destiny. But to go back to your question, the term is coined and we're not exactly sure who does it. There's sort of a vibrant debate ongoing within the historical profession. It's generally credited to John L. O'Sullivan, who's sort of a popular, uh, somewhat popular, I would say, New York writer who writes and he helps found and then contributes to a magazine known as the Democratic Review, which its title changes several times over the decades. But it's United States Magazine and Democratic Review. And O'Sullivan publishes several articles there's a sort of a counter interpretation that argues that a, a woman named Jane McManus Storms Casnow is the one who actually coined the term. We'll never know. These are unsigned articles. I think you can make a really good case for either one. What I tried to do in the book and what I hope it really shows is that whoever coined it, if it is O'Sullivan, if it's not, they had a consistent definition because you can go through the Democratic Review, thanks to keyword searches, you can find every article that talks about Manifest Destiny. You can see how they define it. In the context of the 1840s, what O'Sullivan argues is that the U.S., he first argues this about Texas, he later expands it to Oregon. I show in the book, in my opening to my chapter on the Civil War, that O'Sullivan is still writing about Manifest Destiny in 1860, he actually publishes an open letter. He still defines it as continentalism. So even though he constantly argues we need Texas to fulfill Manifest Destiny, he later argues we need Oregon to fill out Manifest Destiny. In both those cases, he's not saying if we acquire Texas, 
that means Manifest Destiny is sort of complete. Or even if we get the Pacific Coast, somehow if we have California and stretch up into the Oregon Territory, that that sort of fulfills Manifest Destiny. He always defines it, or at least the Democratic Review always defines it as, this is part of a larger puzzle of North America eventually becoming one, linking together either through conquest in the case of Mexico or really through annexation in the case of Canada. Most individuals like O'Sullivan really think that Canada will just sort of link up with the United States, that there's no need to conquer or invade, that one day Canada, sort of Canadians will just decide we want to be part and join with the United States and that'll give the U.S. sort of that region and then you'll eventually sort of swoop down into Mexico, break it off piece by piece. What I did find consistently is the Democratic Review. I use the example of the New York Times. You could really go to almost any major newspaper, 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, always sort of talks about Manifest Destiny in the same way as the U.S. needs to acquire the continent of North America. And I try to show examples of that throughout, throughout the book. At first, it applies to Texas. During the U.S.-Mexican War, Manifest Destiny quickly becomes the argument, we need to take all of Mexico, like all of Mexico should belong to the United States. So that quickly becomes the argument. In the 1850s, you start to see Cuba, Canada. As time passes, you'll still see Cuba really become the, the chief place that individuals want to either conquer or sort of annex through purchase. You see that play out over and over. So what I did find, and the argument I really make throughout the book, is that even if you look at proponents of Manifest Destiny, if it's O'Sullivan, if it's not O'Sullivan, but if you look at the Democratic Review and other magazines, newspapers, politicians who were pro-Manifest Destiny, they always defined it as continentalism. They never see it as being complete. And they're always looking for that next bit of North America to swallow up. They're always thinking, okay, here comes more of Mexico. Canada, it's just about to join the Union. Like, it's just, it's on the verge. And they do this pretty consistently from the 1850s into the 1860s. They always think Cuba is just somehow going to become a part of the United States. So there is sort of this underlying optimism with the proponents of Manifest Destiny, but it's an optimism that I think does not play out all that well because as time passes, I mean, as we all know, Canada doesn't just go, oh yes, let's become a part of the United States. Canada has its own history, same with Mexico. Cuba has its own sort of internal debates over colonization and sort of its relationship to Spain and its relationship to the U.S. So you do sort of see that play out. What I try to really do throughout the book is just contextualize it to show, okay, this is how individuals in the 19th century saw Manifest Destiny. Here's as many examples as I can provide of this from newspapers, politicians, magazines, people like John L. O'Sullivan, Stephen Douglas, William Henry Seward, Individuals who legitimately believed in it, like how did they see Manifest Destiny? That's how I try to define it. And that's how I try to sort of show how the concept is perceived over the course of these three decades. So I go back to Texas, I begin in Texas, but I think O'Sullivan and others really do keep that idea of Manifest Destiny 
well past Texas, well past Oregon, um, really well into the 1860s. It's so funny that all of these um, Manifest Destiny proponents and sort of true believers that they always think that Canada is just about to fall into the hands of the United States, in part because, if I remember correctly, people are making the same argument during the American Revolution and during the War of 1812 that, oh, of course, you know, these these northern provinces or Canada is just about to fall into the hands of the United States. They're going to side with us. And that never happens, right? So they're still thinking this well into the 19th century, even though that's never been the case. Yes, the optimism is yeah, <laughs> and especially even with Cuba, um, they mm-hmm. constantly they'll go and they'll offer a price, and Spain's like, no way, we're not selling this, we're not selling it, and right, Pierce Buchanan just have this weird optimism of, okay, we'll just up the price, and I'm sure they're going to say yes this time, mm-hmm. and it's that lingering, the same idea. I think we tend to overlook the whole issue of. Canadian annexation just because we know how the story plays out Mm -hmm. if you talk to expansionists in the 19th century I mean you're right in the revolution the war of 1812 the US invades and thinks Mm -hmm. that somehow that's going to pull Canada closer in some (laughs) in some way shape or form that's like oh they're just waiting for this invasion and it's 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 going to happen and then by the 1840s and 50s there's much less talk about an actual invasion or really forcing but if you have an economic downturn in Canada, if they think there's a rift between, you know, the British provinces and, and sort of this this idea that there's sort of a rift and, oh, it's going to happen. I mean, I think the example I used throughout the book, William Henry Seward constantly says, just wait until we eradicate the institution of slavery. As soon as that happens... Canada's just going to be like, boom, we want to join up with the U.S. Because they're just waiting until that institution of slavery is gone. And there's that optimism. There is that optimism. And again, to a certain extent, I think when we look at Manifest Destiny and define it as East to West expansion, we miss all of those debates. We miss that whole Canadian sort of annexation issue that Mm -hmm. I think is kind of hilarious. But at the same point in time, they're deadly serious thinking about how this is going to happen. One of the things that's also kind of funny, or at least it's it's somewhat amusing, is at, at certain points in the 1850s, Southerners are like, oh no, we're about to annex Canada. Like, what do we do? We can't have that. So a big argument becomes we need Cuba to offset annexing Canada, even though realistically neither one's really on the table at that time. I mean, it's like, yeah. it's not going to happen. But both sides are sort of like, oh no. If we get Canada, it's going to be free soil, and then we're going to be outnumbered. But then in the north, it's sort of, oh, if we get Cuba, maybe we should just grab Canada, too. Yeah. <laughs> and those are somewhat detached from reality. <laughs> <laughs> so after the Mexican-American War ends in the late 1840s, um, you actually have opponents of Manifest Destiny and American expansion who find an ally in the White House, in President Zachary Taylor, one of those presidents who doesn't usually get a lot of play, but as you make the argument in the book, is actually pretty important for understanding how this politics is playing out in the, the middle decades of the century. So can you tell us a bit about debates over American expansion after the Mexican-American War, but before the Civil War itself in the early to mid-1850s? Yeah, so one of the things that I really tried to focus on, and I should be clear, I did not start off thinking I was going to spend much time thinking about Zachary Taylor. He's the most forgettable president, or one of the most forgettable. I see the rankings always come out. 
<laughs> and I always get a chuckle because the poor guy, he gets ranked so low on the list. He gets called names by almost everyone. Oh, that, you know, Zachary Taylor didn't know what he was doing. He was a terrible president. It's like, he was only in office a year. He didn't really have a chance to do a whole lot. So I think it, he's him along with William Henry Harrison or two that, that sort of deserve somewhat of a pass in terms of the ranking system or however we sort of see that. But Zachary Taylor is a hero of the U.S.-Mexican War. Um, it does sort of create this interesting, interesting conundrum because Whigs oppose the U.S.-Mexican War and they're pretty vocal. So my first chapter after the introduction looks at, okay, how do people oppose the U.S.-Mexican War? What's sort of the background? Picking Zachary Taylor to then be your presidential candidate seems somewhat odd. Simply given that he led U.S. forces for a good half of the war. He's only really famous because of what he does in the U.S.-Mexican War in a war that Whigs are saying is wrong. So he sort of has this, this weird um, rise to fame. What I found intriguing, though, and this is what I, I really hope the book sketches out in greater detail, is that Zachary Taylor is really an important figure, and not just because he ends up winning this election. In 1848, you really see two parties opposed to each other that have completely different ideas about the course of U.S. empire. James K. Polk decides not to run again. He's obviously been quite successful in expanding the United States in acquiring sort of what becomes the Southwest. He steps down in that he doesn't seek a second term. The Democrats end up running Lewis Cass. And what's interesting about Cass, one of your strongest proponents of expansion, he comes out and says basically during the U.S.-Mexican War, his line is, we should swallow all of Mexico. So, I mean, he's pretty open in his belief that the U.S. should just take all of Mexico. He's opposed by Zachary Taylor. What I found as I researched the campaign of 1848 and then the election of 1848 is really that Taylor's a transitional figure and that he's the first time a political party really mobilizes in opposition to expansionism in the sense of the U.S. has enough territory is the argument the Whigs essentially make. The United States does not need more territory is the argument that Taylor will make throughout the campaign. And interestingly, Taylor comes out pretty strongly against the subjugation, as he calls it, of Mexico, even though, I mean, the irony is he's the guy who sort of enables that to happen by winning battles throughout 1846 and into 1847. So even though he sort of says that's the case, he also doesn't think the U.S. really needs to take any territory from Mexico. So the Whigs come out very strongly against both the U.S.-Mexican War, taking territory, when the U.S. does end up ratifying the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Taylor just becomes interesting because, again, he's running against the idea of expansion, even though he's a military hero who's famous because of the U.S.-Mexican War. He defeats Lewis Cass. And I think what I found as I researched that election more and more is just the way in which Whigs tried to show that the United States would be unsafe if it carried out Manifest Destiny. And some of this, as I'm sure we'll get into, is rooted in a deep-seated racism. The idea that you can't have, again, this is from 
sort of the perspective of the opponents of Manifest Destiny, you really don't want Mexico as part of the United States because you don't want Mexicans within the Union. This idea that the U.S. is, is just big enough. We really just don't need extra territory. So the Whigs really run with that in 1848. What I just found fascinating was the fact that Whigs are open in their condemnation of Manifest Destiny. They argue that it's really not necessary. They continually, and I have several cartoons throughout the book that point this out, they just completely roast Lewis Cass as, oh, if you vote for Cass, you're basically going to get another war. Do you want a war with Spain? Do you want a war with England? Do you want a war with Mexico again? And they go on and on about this, and I think it is quite effective in that they, they argue that Manifest Destiny will lead the U.S. into unnecessary wars. Their example is the U.S.-Mexican War, which they see as an unjust and sort of unprincipled conflict. They argue that the U.S. should not have engaged in it and that the U.S. certainly should not have taken land from Mexico, which I do hope the book does, does show. I think the Whigs are actually, they sort of understand the looming sectional crisis and the problems that are going to spring up if you grab all this land. But I center that on Zachary Taylor. What I then show is that even though Taylor's only in office for a year, he comes out in 1850 with what's known as the clayton Bulwer Treaty. And again, it's a treaty that no one really talks about. It's not a super famous treaty. Those who study the Panama Canal in the 1890s and early sort of turn of the century, um, turn of the, 20, the turn of the 19th century, turn of the 20th century, sort of look at some of these events. But one of the interesting things that I've found is the fact that when you look at the clayton Bulwer Treaty, it basically states between the United States and England that neither side is going to colonize or seek to colonize Central America. Now, again, working with the definition of Manifest Destiny, 1850, the idea that the U.S. is destined to take over North America, proponents of Manifest Destiny are absolutely appalled at this treaty. James Buchanan writes off this really quickly sort of hurried letter asking his friend, William King, who's in the Senate, like, you can't vote for this treaty. The U.S. is destined to eventually acquire all of Central America. You can't sort of believe in this. And what's really interesting is King writes back and King simply says, uh, I basically have zero interest in acquiring Central America. I think it's a waste of time. We don't need it. Let's sign this treaty with England. And essentially what this treaty does is it sets it up so that the U.S. and England, if an interoceanic canal is ever built, both England and the United States will sort of jointly handle that interoceanic canal through... At the time, they were thinking Nicaragua. There were debates about whether you could use Mexico as well to sort of build that canal. But wherever they eventually decided this idea that that the United States and England would sort of do this jointly um, is interesting. What I found the most interesting, though, and what I really tried to highlight um, in that particular chapter, Zachary Taylor comes out strongly in favor of the treaty. It's his Secretary of State who negotiates it. But what's really interesting about this particular treaty is that Taylor says in his letter to the Senate, okay, here's the clayton Bulwer Treaty. This is its provisions. I don't believe that the United States should seek to acquire 
these independent Central American republics, that these are all autonomous nations. They deserve to have sort of their own independent lives. He essentially says the U.S. should mind its own business when it comes to these republics. Now, again, that's very different than Buchanan, than the, the more militant wing of the Democratic Party, which is continually arguing that the United States is going to swallow Mexico. It's eventually going to sort of move into that territory. And eventually sort of all the republics of Central America are going to fall into the hands of the United States. So the clayton Bulwer Treaty really strikes at the heart of Manifest Destiny. It is ratified. It easily passes the Senate. So he doesn't have problems getting it through a Democratic-controlled Senate. It's somewhat interesting. I do think, for me, why I tried to focus on events or treaties like the Clayton Bulwer, it's one of the few treaties in U.S. history where the United States sort of frankly states that it's not going to seek to expand. I mean, the history of U.S. up until 1850 is the story of expansion, the U.S. slowly moving into different regions, either taking them by force or sort of using different means to acquire them. To state that the U.S. really has no interest into expanding into these regions is just something that I think should be highlighted that we should understand. Again, it's it's not saying that this is sort of the most magnanimous moment in U.S. history or that the U.S. is really thinking about the good of Central America. Most of those who back this treaty like King simply think the U.S. has no business sort of acquiring these regions. But it is interesting how that sort of plays out. So again, I had no interest in Zachary Taylor um, heading into this project. As I started to read about him, as I started to understand, I do think the foreign policy that he embraces, and that, again, he gets a treaty through the Senate, so it does get through there, somewhat successful, at least in that year he's in office, but also just represents sort of a flip side of, we don't need expansion, which is the argument that Whigs have made for years, and the argument that I, I would argue Zachary Taylor is relatively successful. So I, I don't know if that gets him up in the presidential rankings or if people will actually care about Zachary Taylor um, at this point. Again, he's a short-lived president, but I do think sort of the contrast between him and not to go all counterfactual, but what if he's not in office and you have a Lewis Cass in office? What happens sort of if 1848 turns out differently and you have much more of an expansion-minded president occupying the White House I think U.S. history would look a lot different in the late 1840s and early 1850s if you don't end up with Taylor and Fillmore, both of whom try to squash these attempts to expand the U.S. again, past into, or at least into the region of Mexico and then taking more of sort of Central America. At the same time, though, as much as you do have, um, you know, Taylor and and the, the the Whig Party who are opposing expansion in a lot of ways, throughout the decade before the Civil War, you also have Americans, at least some Americans, that are trying to take this question of expansion into their own hands and forming what are essentially paramilitary groups in order to expand the boundaries of the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of what becomes known as filibustering and specifically about the history of Americans coveting the island of Cuba? Yes, this is one of the things that I, I always try to entertain students with this when I've taught because everyone finds this so fascinating. To, sign up, to set the stage here, when the U.S. ends the U.S.-Mexican War... 
it does obviously acquire a great deal of territory and starts to expand west. What you do also see, though, and you see this from individuals who believe in Manifest Destiny, before the war even ends, John L. O'Sullivan, it's kind of a funny moment, he barges in or he goes to visit James K. Polk. And O'Sullivan is like, we need Cuba. Like, we must have Cuba. And you start to see individuals approach Polk with this idea of the U.S. just has to have Cuba. Now, again, this is where Zachary Taylor and the Whigs do play an important role and why I think filibustering needs to be understood in the context of the time. When Polk is interested in acquiring Cuba, he approaches Spain with an offer. Spain, as they always do, just refuses in any way to consider selling Cuba. Polk is out of office before he really has a chance to push that through or really, I mean, he basically sends his emissary. They broach the idea. It doesn't get anywhere. And that sort of ends that venture. What's really interesting is this. After the election of Zachary Taylor, Whigs have absolutely zero interest in acquiring Cuba. So you have Taylor. And after he passes away, um, roughly a year after his election in 1850, you have Millard Fillmore, another sort of unknown president. But Fillmore takes that same view. Now, why this matters and why this sort of setup matters is individuals like O'Sullivan, but also individuals within Cuba who are dissatisfied with Spanish rule, they link up and realize the White House has zero interest in acquiring Cuba now. If we do want to take Cuba, we're going to have to do something that's extra legal. So this is what becomes known as filibustering, which again, there's no reason or I've never found a reason um, Bob May was on my dissertation committee. He, he sort of still sees it as being somewhat vague. In the 18th, in 1860, so around the Civil War, all of a sudden filibustering becomes a term used in congressional debates. Um, this idea of you can filibuster legislation and do this or that, which is how we think of it today. Prior to that, in the 1850s, if you talked about filibustering, it was this idea of being a pirate or going and sort of taking what did not belong to you. So essentially a man by the name of Narciso Lopez, who he's, I believe he's born in Venezuela. He eventually relocates to Cuba. He becomes dissatisfied with the rule of Spain and Cuba. He will eventually be exiled or he makes his escape from Cuba, comes to the United States. He hooks up and sort of befriends O'Sullivan and different individuals within New York. So cutting this sort of long story somewhat short, they decide that the best way to get Cuba is through filibuster invasions. So they do set out. There's four different times that they will try to launch an invasion. It is sort of like a, it's a comedy of errors because on two separate occasions, Lopez and roughly 500 men end up setting out from New Orleans. They end up in Cuba. They think a massive revolt is going to rise up. Like, all we have to do is we'll just pop in there and lo and behold, everyone's going to join us. It's going to be this massive revolution. Bam. It never happens. Both times they show up. Um, the first time they sort of take over the customs house. They're fired upon. There's no real revolution. And they, they make a hasty retreat. They show back up in the United States. They end up coming back. The second time they make it to Cuba they're captured, quickly executed. Now, 
this backstory of filibustering is simply to set up within the U.S., the question becomes, what should we do? The Whigs essentially, when they're in the White House, take up the view that the U.S. is better off without Cuba. Basically, the sexual um, sectional tension just getting too bad over time. So they, they argue that basically if, we, if it sort of gets worse, what we'll see happen is this will become a slave state. We don't want that to happen. So they sort of go, they go through all of that and it becomes sort of dicey for them, um, this perspective. What then happens is you start to see Democrats divide on the issue. And this is where you start to see this debate. And I, I try to discuss this in my chapters on the early 1850s. The Democratic Party is somewhat torn on this issue. So Whigs simply oppose it altogether. Democrats, some Democrats, John L. O'Sullivan, there's a few others within the ranks of the Democratic Party, they see filibustering as a means to an end. In other words, maybe if filibusters land on the island, cause a disturbance, we can sort of pressure Spain into selling us Cuba. So they start to make that argument, and you see that a lot. On the flip side, <laughs> filibustering is illegal. What these men are partaking in is an illegal military venture. It's not something that individuals are allowed to do. Now, they are tried often when they get back to the U.S. They're never convicted, so they're able to sort of raise funds and go back and filibuster again. But the Democratic Party does split. And there's a couple of examples that I use in the book. Um, William Marcy made one of them, who's the Secretary of State under Franklin Pierce. And he's he just doesn't know what to do. He, he kind of goes, these pirates, these robbers are setting out, and I really don't know what to do with all of this. Um, we should not be doing this. This is not the way you acquire territory. So there's sort of this division throughout. As, as we all know, the filibusters are not successful. And as I argue throughout the book, I argue that filibustering turns out to harm expansionism. This is an argument that Bob May has made in the past in his studies of filibustering, mainly because it puts Democrats on the defensive. They're forced to go and sort of justify themselves before the American public, saying, okay, we don't really agree with filibustering, again, because it's illegal. And so as a political party, they can't really come down and say, yes, we're pro-filibustering. So there's sort of this internal debate that interestingly plays out. It is, though, sort of a disastrous policy from the 1850s, really from 1850 until 1855, when Pierce sort of abandons the idea that he'll just acquire Cuba. But there is that unbounded optimism that the U.S. will sort of just, in some way, shape, or form, get Cuba. The filibusters are an interesting episode. Again, Narciso Lopez really thinks that if he lands an invasion force in Cuba, that there's going to be an uprising. And he really thinks that. And he, he takes 500 men twice and lands there. He gets a lot of Americans to join up with him, and they go there fully thinking that this will be successful. It's not. So again, I think the, the larger point that I try to weave throughout the narrative is we need to focus more attention on some of these moments when the U.S. is unsuccessful, even if filibustering is sort of a, an extra legal or um, an unofficial way of acquiring territory. It's not successful in the least. To say nothing of the fact that Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, both try to by Cuba, that goes nowhere. So these guys are not successful in their attempts to expand the nation, but more importantly, they're very unsuccessful in, in acquiring what they consider to be sort of the gem 
of the U.S. empire, this idea that Cuba is going to be sort of this missing piece and that we just have to have it, they're very dissatisfied with how things turn out. And this is a perfect example of, you know, really kind of the title of your book itself, right? That you have these individuals who have a vision of what American empire should look like and they try to make it a reality, but they fail at doing so, right? Just again, going to show that Manifest Destiny, you know, it can be an idea that some people hold very, you know, very, very close to their hearts that they believe in very strongly, but it's one thing to believe something. It's another thing to put that idea into action. And in this case, they're failing to do so. Yes. And that's the thing that I think is is so fascinating because when we... When we flesh out this story, it's so much more interesting when we include the filibusters and when we look at mm-hmm. sort of these different these different events. I just think it's much more interesting when we kind of don't overlook the failures of U.S. empire because I think a lot of historians have pushed back against U.S. exceptionalism to a degree. But when you read histories of U.S. empire in the 19th century or when you look at sort of larger studies of U.S. expansionism, they're still sort of written in exceptionalist frameworks. In other words, Mm -hmm. we look at Texas, then we sort of look at the U.S.-Mexican War, then we skip over and maybe we talk about Alaska, but Alaska, and then the next thing you know, you're talking about the Spanish-American War. We don't, so often we don't look at sort of all of these sort of aborted um, empire seeking individuals who who really think we're going to get Cuba and who really, if, mm-hmm. if you looked, if you go back to the 1850s and you tell John L. O'Sullivan, the United States does not own Cuba today in 2022. I think he'd be floored. I mean, mm-hmm. he just, he just thought that was going to happen somehow. Yeah. Um, and yes, he had no plan. And they had no plan, but um, they, they, they somehow thought it was going to happen, which is fascinating to me. Like with almost everything in American history, the Civil War and the sectional crisis of the mid-19th century marks this really important turning point, this moment of, of change in American life. And that's the case with this question of uh, 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 manifest destiny and empire building as well. So my question is kind of like a, a two-part interconnected question. How does the sectional crisis... Uh, 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 well, let me ask you this way. What's the relationship between Manifest Destiny and the coming of the sectional crisis? And then how does that crisis in the Civil War, how does it change the concept of Manifest Destiny? How does it affect that concept of Manifest Destiny itself? So I guess, broadly speaking, the late 1850s into the 1860s, how is this a turning point in this concept and its, its kind of viability at, at the same time as, as all this other stuff is going on too? Yeah, that's really one of the trickier questions that I had sort of working through as I was working in these different eras, I was familiar with the 1840s. I was familiar with the early 1850s. And I think most of us are those who study U.S. expansion, sort of think about Cuba and some of these different topics. But one of the things that traditionally happens, even in really, really good studies of Manifest Destiny, um, authors who I read their books and the Mercs and others that I'm like, okay, I agree with this. They usually end in 1854. So the traditional argument is sort of, okay, you get the sectional crisis sort of after the U.S.-Mexican War when the U.S. acquires all these different places and starts moving west. One of the things that you see eventually happen is sectionalism triumph over manifest destiny. Manifest destiny sort of just goes away or it's sort of just gone usually by 1854. What I found is, no, not really. I mean, they're still debating this 
through the Civil War, which then leads to the question, okay, what are those debates? What do they look like? And this is where you really do start to see much more of a sectional manifest destiny, but also a manifest destiny, destiny that is impacted by the growing sectional crisis. And what I mean by that, originally your support for manifest destiny is really heaviest in New York, some of your bigger urban centers, um, New Orleans, but also other places in the South where you do have individuals sort of seeking to constantly expand the U.S. empire. At the same point in time, it's not really a sectional, if you will, ideology. I mean, if you think about it, the idea that the U.S., which O'Sullivan constantly argues, is going to get Canada, really flies in the face of what you start to see with Southerners who are, who are dead set against acquiring any territory, even potentially that would not support or in other ways expand or supplement the institution of slavery. Like they're not going to add, or they don't want to add uh, free states to the United States. So you start to see that. So one of the things that I try to draw upon and that I try to show over the 1850s, people still debate and talk about manifest destiny. But what becomes really interesting is you still have sort of those older proponents of manifest destiny, the John L. O'Sullivan's, those sort of New York, um, otherwise sort of affiliated individuals who still think the U.S. is sort of going to expand and that the issue of slavery is just not that important. That honestly, it's not really something that we should worry ourselves about. It's not something that's going to break up the union. I mean, they don't foresee it coming. Stephen Douglas makes this debate or makes this argument, I should say, throughout the 1850s, this idea that the U.S. can expand and expand and expand and there's going to be no problems. It's just going to be like, oh, yeah, the U.S. can just keep expanding. We're never going to see any problems. Um, he was wrong with that. So he does, he does not get that particular issue right. But what I found really interesting, beginning in the middle of the 1850s, as you start to see the Republican Party rise up, you still see expansionists. You still see individuals in the North who start, who believe in manifest destiny. But what's really interesting to me is you start to see the argument more and more that we need to sort of hold off on manifest destiny until a later period of time when the issue of slavery doesn't divide the United States anymore. So Republicans, and again, the Republicans are a diverse coalition. So I don't want to say, okay, they all believe in this or they all believe in that. There's different groups within the party some of whom are former Democrats who are very sort of pro-manifest destiny or expansion. There's others who don't believe in it. But to a large extent, Republicans build this argument that manifest destiny far too often in the past has been a sectional ideology. And again, I use this example in the book. John P. Hale sort of hits the nail on the head when he argues in 1859. He argues that manifest destiny is continentalism. And that the U.S. is sort of, if you're a proponent of Manifest Destiny, that means you're supposed to ex want expansion north as well as south. But the U.S. has been acquiring territories, he argues, predominantly to appease Southerners. So what becomes really sort of the interesting twist in the mid-1850s is you have Southerners who don't necessarily believe in Manifest Destiny anymore <laughs> because they don't want Canada. So they start to argue, okay, maybe we just need Cuba, but this whole idea of continentalism, yeah, 
we don't really want that because that's going to mean we're having a lot more free states and we don't want that. So you start to see that in the South. What's interesting to me is in the North, you sort of see the reverse of that. Republicans start to argue, and I use William Henry Seward really as a main example of this. Well, expansionism is good so long as we can do it without the institution of slavery. So Seward says this in speech after speech after speech, essentially the U.S. will one day be a continental nation. Like one day the U.S. is going to have Canada. He argues in 1860, so right on the cusp of the Civil War, that Central America is sort of breaking up. All these republics are falling apart. They're just going to decide to join up with the United States. But what the U.S. needs to do is eradicate the institution of slavery, and then we won't be divided as a country. And these other sort of republics, or in the case of Mexico, um, these other nations will just sort of come in to the United States and willingly link up and be part of the great and expanding sort of continental, continental union. Republicans sort of have that optimism. So Republicans, interestingly, many of them are expansionists, and some of them do believe in manifest destiny. I have sort of the example that I use in the book is Seward and the New York Herald, which is a really popular New York newspaper that is pro-manifest destiny. It, it co consistently argues from the U.S.-Mexican War all the way through really the early 1870s that the U.S. needs Mexico, Canada, and it sort of fills that out with Cuba. They've come down firmly as time passes on the side of the Union. They eventually become a strong supporter of Lincoln and sort of the Union war effort. At the same time, they're very pro-Manifest Destiny. So you start to see sort of these variations of Manifest Destiny. Again, what I think sets this book or my book apart from earlier studies is that I tease it out through the 1850s and into the Civil War. Like, how are people talking about Manifest Destiny in the midst of the Civil War? What do people think about that idea? And the thing that I think is most intriguing is that you get all types of perspectives. Individuals still talk about Manifest Destiny in 1861, in 1862, in 63, in 64. You have Southerners who are sort of proud of the Confederacy because they've killed the idea of Manifest Destiny because if the Confederacy stands, there will never be one continental sort of union. So they're boasting in the Richmond, some of the Richmond papers like, oh, we're the ones who blocked Manifest Destiny. You have some Northerners who are simply like, uh, we shouldn't expand because this is what happens when we expand too much. So you see all of these different viewpoints play out. I would consider Manifest Destiny to be very fractured late 1850s and through the Civil War. You just have so many people looking at it in so many different ways. You have those in the South who are very sort of dissatisfied with it. You have some in the North who think the U.S. is just on the cusp of great things and this is sort of the great turning point so you see all of those things sort of play out during and then well slightly before and then during the civil war 
And then Manifest Destiny, as we'll, we'll talk about here as we start to wrap up a little bit, it's going to stick around, right? Yes. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't fade away as an ideological force even after the Union victory in the war. So, can we talk a little bit about the afterlives of the concept, both in the 1860s and 70s, and then maybe the long tail of the idea as well? Why does this question matter not just in the late 19th century, but even up until today, thinking about and talking about the idea of Manifest Destiny? Yes. So the one thing that I think the book really hits one, especially in later chapters, is when we take the broader view of Manifest Destiny, so when we do see it as continentalism, you can tease out a lot of these debates and you can also include other events that typically get skipped over. I, again, a lot of us who study the U.S. mid-19th century, we know about sort of, okay, the U.S. gets Alaska at some point, but that's not really baked into the narrative of U.S. expansion or even sort of traditional stories of the United States. Most times when we talk about 1865, 66, 67, we're talking about Reconstruction, Andrew Johnson, the amendments, sort of what's going on at that time. What I try to highlight is, again, not downplaying those events, but simply turning our gaze to some different events that I think should be highlighted because they're really important. I mean, acquiring Alaska is a really important step for both U.S. empire, obviously, for the individuals in those regions, sort of the growth of the U.S. as it continues to expand. So what I try to tease out in later chapters is, okay, the U.S., the idea of Manifest Destiny survives the Civil War. I argue that it actually is rejuvenated by the Civil War in the sense that the question of slavery is solved. So if you will, what's been blocking Manifest Destiny to individuals like William Henry Seward the issue of slavery, it's just gone to him. He doesn't see that, okay, he goes, that's sort of in the past, now the U.S. can expand. So he, he just picks up, if you will, where he left off. He quickly acquires, it sort of rams through the Alaska Treaty really quickly through the Senate. There's a lot of corruption involved, but he's able to sort of get that through. What does he turn to next? Well, he almost immediately pulls off another treaty, one that's traditionally overlooked, at the time known as the Danish West Indies, later we'll call them the Virgin Islands, um, in the sense when the U.S. eventually does acquire them and really turn them into a territory, um, it will be the Virgin Islands. What's really sort of the back and forth here and that you see play out over time is sort of the empire doesn't stop expanding. Just because the Civil War is done, the narrative doesn't stop. So the U.S., after the Civil War, immediately looks to and successfully does acquires Alaska, immediately turns to the Danish West Indies, so Virgin Islands, and then I trace it all the way through U.S. Grant, who tries to acquire and really sort of has it as his chief idea to acquire the Dominican Republic, which he has a treaty that if the Senate does not block, that the Senate ratifies, the United States would have acquired the Dominican Republic. Now, how that would have played out is anyone's guess, um, there's there's no telling how that sort of story would have worked or what would have happened. But I think the story of U.S. empire, U.S. expansion, what happens is so much richer when we look past the 1860s and realize these individuals have, they don't just think, oh, civil war, we can't expand anymore. They look and a lot of individuals look and say, oh, this is our chance to fulfill manifest destiny. That's what Seward tries to do. So what I try to sort of work through and analyze in the, the last couple of chapters of my book 
is how that idea of manifest destiny plays out. And my argument is essentially that over time, politicians and expansionists, so sort of the older line expansionists, the O'Sullivans, the William Henry Sewards, um, Stephen Douglas dies somewhat early um, in the early 1860s. But the individuals who were the chief proponents of Manifest Destiny, they've become disillusioned or eventually they sort of realize that there's no chance of ramming through some of these things. And again, I trace a lot of this or I argue a lot of this has to do with racial animus that a lot of what happens in the aftermath of the Civil War is most Americans are not interested, or I should, I should say most white Americans are not interested in adding regions that would potentially have a large non-white population. So the Dominican Republic, that sort of gets nixed by the Republican Party, which had the votes if they wanted to, to ratify that. They turn against Grant. They decide not to do that. But also increasingly over time, Mexico just fades away, especially as you start to see individuals who go, we really don't want to add that region. Most of it just flat out, it's racism. It's this idea of we don't want to add Mexicans into the United States of America. So you, you do sort of see that play out over time. What I hope I show in the last chapter is that even those who really firmly believed in Manifest Destiny, and I use the New York Herald as my main example of this, by 1872, after Grant's failure, most of them come around to the opinion that, yeah, Manifest Destiny is sort of done for. It's done with. We're not going to have it. It's not going to be successful. There's really a lot of them turn against this idea of adding, as they later say, Cubans, Mexicans, and even to a certain extent, Canadians to the United States. They just think there's really no need for that. We don't want that. So you sort of see that play out over time. So it's a really sort of interesting dynamic to sort of answer or to get around to the, the last part of your question. What I essentially argue is that Manifest Destiny does fade away, but the traditional understanding of Manifest Destiny, so Manifest Destiny as Canada, Mexico, and Cuba sort of as a shorthand for that, that sticks around until the 1920s. I mean, you start, you, you see individuals writing about it I mean, we've talked about this throughout um, today's discussion. They still think Canada's going to hook up with the United States at some point. Like, it's just going to somehow just decide, okay, we're just going to join up. And there's another big movement in the 1890s that sort of sees Canadian annexation as inevitable. But really through the First World War, you see individuals writing about that. The unfulfilled idea of Manifest Destiny. I don't have a good answer as to why there's that sudden gap between the 1910s and 1920s and why academic historians sort of lose that traditional definition of manifest destiny and why so many just sort of delimit it and push manifest destiny into being an ideology of the 1840s. But that's really the narrative that slowly picked up by the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And as we've talked about, has really become the dominant narrative I would argue that in spite of the work of some really good historians who have challenged the concept and have pointed out why we shouldn't see it as this unifying concept, that dominant narrative was in place really by 1930 and it hasn't left. So it's ebbed and flowed, but for the most part, if you talk about Manifest Destiny to someone, they're still going to bring up East to West expansion and that's going to be how they define it. 
what I hope I do and what I hope I did in this discussion, but also sort of throughout the book is show, okay, when we take the larger view, you sort of see how it plays out. And individuals in the late 19th century did not think it was a particularly successful ideology. I mean, most of those who write about it either say, oh, it's going to happen one day. It's going to happen one day. Or else the flip side is they're like, yeah, that day's past. It's not going to happen. We need to just abandon it altogether. You might have just addressed this question a moment ago, but um, I'm always interested in having my authors kind of view their book almost as a reader, as someone who is who is who is picking up their book and reading it, and then thinking back on it maybe five or even ten years down the line. What do you hope would be one big takeaway that you hope someone who reads your book might come away understanding or remembering or maybe having their worldview change just a little bit further on down the line, do you think? I th- what I hope the big takeaway is from this is honestly that the story of U.S. empire, even Western expansion is far more interesting and far more <sighs> intriguing than, than we've been led to believe. I, I mean, again, I've hit on this a couple of times. I, I was a firm sort of believer in the idea that, okay, in the 1840s, people generally believed in Manifest Destiny. That leads to the sectional crisis. That leads to the Civil War. Uh, it's successful. It sort of fades away. What I really hope is someone just picks this up and goes, huh, Manifest Destiny wasn't successful. Why is that? Um, why, why does this story look different? Um, why does this sort of play out in a different way? I honestly hope in the first place that people can look at that and say, okay, here's how historians build narratives and here's why we can often miss the point. I think by not going back sometimes to the primary sources and seeing how individuals in different decades, different generations understood themselves, we sort of missed some of those major points, but also understanding that the story is a lot more complex and it's, it's a lot more, uh, for lack of a better word, unexceptional. Um, one big takeaway that I really hope people, people get is not only that U.S. empire isn't always successful, the U.S. does not always get its way. Too often in the 19th century, when I pick up textbooks or books, it's, it's sort of like the U.S. just decides what it wants to do and then it just goes out and does it. It wants Texas, it takes Texas. It wants the coast, it gets the coast. It wants to expand, it gets Alaska. It wants to keep expanding. It sort of meddles in the Spanish-American and the Philippine insurrections and you sort of see those things play out. And it's always a story of U.S. I don't want to use the term, use the word exceptionalism, but this idea that the U.S. is pretty darn successful at doing whatever it wants in terms of its own empire. And I think it's interesting, and I hope readers will flip that narrative around. Ask yourself why when you look at a map today of the United States and when you look at North America, Cuba's not a part of the U.S. Canada's still an independent country. Mexico's still there. If you'd have gone and talked to John L. O'Sullivan, I would argue William Henry Seward, Stephen Douglas, any of these proponents of Manifest Destiny, as I mentioned before, they'd be just flabbergasted that there's still a Honduras and that we still have El Salvador. Like The idea that these are independent, sovereign nations that are able to make their own choices and have their own say, they just saw expansion as inevitable. And I think, as, as we should know as historians, but I hope 
the broader public can understand nothing's inevitable. There's there's no sort of story within U.S. expansion where the U.S. has to look this way or it has to look this way or this has to happen or that has to happen. I mean, I think especially today, what I always try to tell people is voting matters. How people go about their lives matter. When the U.S. elects James K. Polk over Henry Clay, it completely shifts the course of U.S. empire. I argue when Zachary Taylor defeats Lewis Cass, that's another turning point. Obviously, the election of Lincoln. But there are moments throughout U.S. history when I think we need to think about why did things not turn out the way that they turned out. But to go back to the title, the reason I really love the title is because so often we see 19th century empire as successful. Again, not in the sense of being good or bad, even in moral terms, but what the U.S. wanted, it got. I think that's the traditional story of Manifest Destiny. The U.S. sort of coveted this region. The U.S. got this region. To me, that just reeks still of exceptionalism, this idea that the U.S. sort of just was like, oh, this is what our borders are going to look like one day. Oh, look, this is what we got. Where if you actually go back, the story's just more complex than that. And I think we need to think more about the Virgin Islands, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, Mexico, Canada. Understand these regions and understand why they're separate from the United States, but also... Um, I think turning that internal gaze at the U.S. and realize that people debated empire, but also that choices do matter. There's nothing that's, it's not as if, we joked about this at the beginning of, of this discussion, but there's nothing that's sort of in the air or just floating there in this nebulous sense. Um, you read this all the time in textbooks and it just, it still blows my mind. This idea that manifest essay just sort of hung in the air and it was just there and people just sort of, I don't know, drank it in and then they expanded westward. This, that's just not how history happens. People debated. People talked about it. People considered it. And a lot of times, I mean, I tell people this all the time. In this story, it's not as if there's, if, if you will, to go, to go back to this, there's not good guys and bad guys, if you will. Uh, a lot of the reasons why people oppose expansion, so a lot of the opponents of Manifest Destiny that I deal with, decidedly racist. They don't want to expand because they don't want people they perceive as not being white enough to be part of the United States. So it's not even to argue that necessarily these are sort of the good guys, quote unquote, who lost out. It's more of a, okay, history is complex. We need to understand why these things happened, but we need to sort of examine what could have happened, but also, okay, not everything in U.S. history is always, quote unquote, a success. Not everything happens the way people played it out. So maybe that's a little convoluted, but I do hope if you see the title and you see a failed vision of empire, I do think that's sort of the main point I'm trying to impress upon people. Don't see Manifest Destiny as being this sort of overriding successful idea. Look at it as being something that was contested, contingent, and that really fell apart over time. The only reason we we see it as being so successful is because Unfortunately, we sort of just redefined it to make it more successful than it actually was.
it's a case against teleology in short, right? <laughs> Saying that yes. ju- just, just because things ended up this way doesn't mean that this was the way that people wanted them to end up or the only way that they could have ended up and that we can't read history backwards like that. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of the people in the moment at the time. I think that's a great takeaway and something that I certainly think that you made a, a, a strong point in favor of in the book. Thank you. So for my last question, and, um, you know, this is going to be sort of a silly question considering that the book came out something like, oh, two-ish weeks ago now, but historians are always working on many different projects at once. So I'm wondering what you are working on next, what you've been working on since uh, submitting the manuscript for this, and what is, uh, what's on the horizon for you? Uh, it's hard to turn your attention to something else. This is one of the biggest challenges. It's like, oh, what am I going to do next? One thing that I have done in the past, and it's something that I've always been intrigued with, and I probably should have pitched this earlier as one of the reasons, if you're just a general reader and want to read the book, one of the things I've always been intrigued by, and it's where my cover comes from, actually, for the book itself, if you see the individual in the front cover sort of dreaming of U.S. expansion, I've always been intrigued by humor and the ways individuals use humor to contest our challenge ideas that we perceive as being dominant or that sort of go along with ideas that we perceive as being dominant. So one of my my first articles, and it sort of finds its way into various sort of sections of the book, how do people use humor to challenge manifest destiny? How do people sort of use that? So one of the things I've done, and this was somewhat recent, I just had an article come out. And it was a wild time. It came out the same day, um, May 1st, as the official sort of release date of the book. So the timing um, was less than auspicious in terms of, uh, of getting things out and trying to promote them at the same time. But it's an article, Genocidal Jesting, where I look at the ways in which people used humor to argue in favor of genocide um, by using comic indigenous figures in the mid-19th century. So looking at sort of these ideas of empire through the lens of humor. And it's it's something that has always intrigued me. One of the things I always ask throughout this book is, okay, if you have Mark Twain, or if you have individuals that sort of faded in popularity, but Seba Smith, David Ross Locke, what were they writing about Manifest Destiny? One of the things I quickly found is a lot of them, they just saw it as being ridiculous and they made fun of it. And I think that adds a little twist to this idea that we often we often take it far too seriously and and forget that Americans often saw it as something that was somewhat amusing. So this is sort of a, a long way of saying one of my larger studies that I hope to do is look at not necessarily U.S. expansion, but U.S. humor in the mid-19th century, sort of see how it plays out, sort of go to some of these more comic figures um, that I establish in the book and that I try to highlight throughout my research in different articles that I've been I've been working on and looking at how humor sort of plays out. The second study that I'm working on and sort of the, the second book project, if you will, it's a history of what I'm terming the Washington Doctrine. So in other words, most, I think, readers, um, most people mildly interested in U.S. history are familiar with the Monroe Doctrine, sort of this idea of the U.S. as having sort of hemispheric control of 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 this region and, and sort of the background there. What I'm, I'm trying to get at is in one chapter of the book, I look at George Washington and his farewell address and how Americans in the mid 19th century used his farewell address to sort of refract their ideas of empire. So in other words, they argue that George Washington would have opposed empire. He wouldn't have been in favor of the U.S.-Mexican war because he said we should not involve ourselves in the affairs of other nations. And I, I keep I kept coming across 
individuals who, who were using what I termed the Washington Doctrine to sort of explore U.S. empire. So my hope, and again, this is sort of long-term plans, a broad study of 19th century empire that really looks at various forms of U.S. expansion spanning from the War of 1812 all the way through the Spanish-Americans or Philippine Wars and what happens in the late 1890s. One of the things that really fascinated me throughout this book was a way in which you can take U.S. empire and the trends you see in the 1840s continue into the 1870s. So Manifest Destiny is being discussed in all these different decades. It really doesn't follow our traditional chronology. You know, um, when people ask me what I study, it's often confusing because I don't study the Civil War, but my subject goes through the Civil War. I'm not really an early republic or historian of the early republic, even though some of my research carries through that era. I don't do the Spanish-American War, but I'm really intrigued by what happens in the 1890s. So my next project to sort of wind back here and bring this under control is a larger study of 19th century empire, looking at how individuals sort of use the example of Washington, but the Washington Doctrine, to either oppose the expansion of the United States, so sort of those opponents of whether that's removing indigenous people from various regions or U.S. empire in the Philippines, to looking at sort of how that plays out over the long 19th century. As you can tell, the idea isn't all that fleshed out. I still, I'm intrigued by 19th century, sort of the longer view of the 19th century. I do want to tie in whatever I do next, really looking early 19th century to the late 19th century. I think Manifest Destiny sort of allowed me to dabble a bit in some of these time periods, but to also... To show the continuities of history is something I really want to do. So to kind of pull that up and bring that together. And I see all three of these pieces, both the one that, that we just talked about and the two that you're articulating as possible future projects as all being of a, of a piece with each other. What I see is the connecting point is they're all interested in how people at the time were trying to make sense of the changes that were going on in American history, whether it's through humor, whether it is through debating this 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 one particular very partisan concept, or whether it is viewing them through the, the lens of George Washington, this kind of mm. like marbled figure in American history. They're all about people using these sort of ideas to, to try to figure out where they stand on issues facing the United States in the, the century in question. Yes, and I think the one, if there is kind of a common thread, you're, you're exactly right. I think I, I'm beginning to see myself more as a historian of U.S. empire in all mm -hmm. its various forms, whether that's um, the recent article in the Pacific Historical Review sort of looks at more traditionally what we know as Western expansion. This is not manifest destiny so much, but the U.S. moving east to west and sort of the justifications for indigenous removal. Um, one of the mm -hmm. things that I'm sort of, I guess I always keep coming back to is that what arguments do people make in favor of expansion? What arguments do they make in opposition to it? Sort of how do those things coexist? I do think to do that, one of the problems I've seen in terms of the historical profession is we just tend to care, like sort of break ourselves down with these artificial categories, if you will. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a historian of the U.S. West, or I study this, or I study this. It's very hard when you say, okay, this is U.S. empire, because yes, it's very connected to the U.S. West. But at the same point in time, it's Cuba and it's it's regions we don't really associate with that. So that's kind of 
the interesting thing to me is sort of how how do you come to define yourself but i think that's you hit sort of the nail on the head with that i'm intrigued by how people oppose empire i think as time mm-hmm. has passed and as i looked at the proponents of manifest destiny i think if i have one regret it's that i didn't have a chapter or a bit more that fleshed out sort of like how did they view the world what sort of what was their their view um, because I'm also sort of, I've become more intrigued by how do people justify indigenous removal? How do they justify taking Mexico? I mean, these things, like how how do you sort of morally make that argument? I think I flipped it around for a while, but I'd, I'd like to kind of, I'd like to get them in conversation with one another in the next book. Um, sort of both sides. How do people use Washington one way? How do they use them the other way? How can he both justify empire because we know, I mean, he, he is an expansionist in the sense of, I mean, he's very much tied to the U.S. moving west. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same point in time, people are using him as this sort of, you know, like you said, this marble figure of, well, Washington says we should not go to war with other countries, so we should not fight Mexico. <laughs> so it's just a very, it's interesting to me, and I, I want to see how that plays out. Yeah. And so so do I. I anxiously look forward to uh, to, to, to both of those, to both those, those, those upcoming books. Yeah. Dr. Daniel Joseph Burge is the research coordinator at the Kentucky Historical Society, where he also serves as an associate editor for that institution's academic journal, the Register of the Kentucky Historical Society. He is also the author of A Failed Vision of Empire, The Collapse of Manifest Destiny, 1845 to 1872, which is hot off the presses, just came out in May 2022 from the University of Nebraska Press. Thank you so much for joining me today, Daniel. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me.